Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, if you have logged in as a guest, and I see a lot of guests in the chat room tonight, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Tonight's show is about Gina's journey, the story, the search for William Grimes with Regina Mason. Regina Mason is an international speaker, author, executive producer, and storyteller who believes in the extraordinary will of the human spirit. Through artistic storytelling, Regina challenges audiences to recast painful stories of America's past in a light that empowers, inspires, and transforms our thinking. Her essays have appeared in the Race Card Project, various blogs, and The Root. She, along with literary critic and expert William L. Andrews, is co-editor of the authoritative 2008 Oxford University Press edition of Life of William Grimes, The Runaway Slave. So let me give a warm welcome to Regina Mason to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Regina. Oh, Bernice, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show again. Thank you for having me. 
Well, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, and I have been following you. And so (laughs) I know you have so much to share with us, and you are such an inspiring person. So help us uh, at least take everyone back to your beginning. What inspired you to begin your search for William Grimes? Oh, that was a long time ago, and it's a long and involved story. It's a it's a lifelong journey. I'll tell you, I was inspired by a fifth grade class assignment on roots and origin, and this was way back in the spring of 1971. My teacher wanted to illustrate that we were all from a different country, and we had to get up and articulate a little bit about our family history and um, where our original roots began. Now, this was in 71, mind you. No one was saying anything good about Africa, the continent, okay? And I felt no kinship to Africa. I was connected to the images of the times, you know, the voice of the late Dr. King, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Panther Party that had erupted in Oakland, my hometown, and so forth. So I felt no um, no kinship to, to Africa. The only thing I knew about Africa were those exaggerated stereotypes that I had seen in movies like Tarzan. So sadly, that was got me started or at least thinking about my ancestry because I went home and I asked my mother, where are we from? And she told me, of course, lots of places. She named the Pacific Northwest, which I knew about. She talked about ties to um, early roots in California. And she talked about um, a long-off history in uh, Connecticut, the New England area that she didn't know much about. Africa never came up, but something else did, and that was the fact that her grandfather, whom she had known, had been um, the child of an interracial union between master and an enslaved woman on a Virginia plantation, and she knew this man. That was a really an eye-opener to me, for one, because, mind you, I'm a kid just learning about slavery, American slavery, American history, and the abolitionist movement and all that kind of thing. So I was shocked to know that slavery was just a few generations from us. And uh, I was also surprised to hear about this interracial union that forbidden that was taboo that um she didn't know much about but i came away feeling like the only thing my history amounted to was an enslaved heritage with backward ties to africa the police people i was a child then trying to sort this all And I can imagine what that was like as a child trying to make sense out of this information that had been shared with you. 
Absolutely. And please believe me, my mother said wonderful, inspiring things, but I latched on to what I viewed as the negative. I couldn't get beyond um, the slavery issue, the miscegenation issue, and all of that. So whatever good that was coming out of her mouth was overshadowed by by the negative. And my mom, she, she realized that I... Um, was having kind of a hard time about this because I didn't know what really to report to my class. And I did say something insignificant about the African continent because, again, I couldn't even pinpoint in Africa where we hailed from. Uh, And then I remember sitting down, Uh, and, and without incident, of course, because, the assignment itself really wasn't a, a big deal, but I, I didn't really realize the internal struggle that was touched off inside of me. So my mother took me to see my Aunt Catherine about a week later, and Aunt Catherine is the family historian. And um, she was also a wonderful storyteller. She used to talk about this great-grandmother of hers who was this, tragedy in in the San Francisco Bay Area that uh, performed Shakespeare and and just a a wonderful uh, uh, singer and and writer and all of this, but I really wasn't interested in hearing about um, this great-grandmother. And Catherine gave me a story that I just latched onto, and it was a story which essentially amounted to three little clues, and those clues were, she told me, she said, you know, somebody in our family by the surname of Grimes had a connection to the Underground Railroad, and he was from New Haven, Connecticut. I said, what? The Underground Railroad? I was just learning about that in school, and I knew that it was an operation that resisted slavery, and to know that I had someone in the family that opposed slavery in some kind of unknown way just really resonated. And when I think of it, it was because it was a resistance story. I needed to hear that we resisted slavery in some form or another. So I begged her for more information, but she had given me all that she knew. Twenty years. That little thread of a story played off and on in my mind. I remember watching Roots and that wonderful saga from the perspective of a black family was just so powerful. And I remember thinking to myself of this Grimes person and saying that I was going to find this person. I was going to see at some point in my life I made a vow that I was going to look for this person And so in 1991, by this time, I'm a young wife with two little tiny daughters. Um, I decided to take up genealogy. I wanted at this point to give my children a better foundation to stand on. And so I took up genealogy. I started... um, gathering vital statistics, census reports, and, you know, the, the the basic information that we start gathering for our searches. 
and I um, was quite successful in in getting information about family. And so my mind told me that, well, if I can, the records appear to be out there to some degree. I wonder if anyone had written about this Grimes person. So I began reading everything I could find on the abolitionist movement, the Underground Railroad, American slavery, American history, any and everything, really trying to get an understanding of um, the journeys my people had taken. Because, so, you know, when you partner genealogy with American history and local history and so forth, you get a clear picture of your family's journey. So um, right when I was about to really abandon the idea of even finding Grimes because the reality of how big my task was began to set in, one day something really remarkable happened. I had a ton of books. We always had library books laying around, and and, um, I tried to be real good about returning them because the fines would add up. And I'd had had stacks of books for my children, and I had my own books. And I remember collecting them and coming across a title that I had not yet looked at, and it was Charles Bloxon's book, The Underground Railroad. So I took a seat on my couch, and I said, well, let me look at this real quick. And I turned immediately to the free New England section of the book. And within the first few pages, if not paragraphs, I stumbled on a a passage that just made my heart drop. Bloxen wrote that a gentleman or a man by the name of uh, William Grimes from Savannah, Georgia, stowed away on a vessel as he hid among bales of cotton, and that this vessel arrived in New York. And while in New York, this William Grimes was put in contact with people who could help him, or those people might say, were associated with the Underground Railroad. And they directed him on foot to New Haven, Connecticut. And so what is remarkable about the passage was that the three little clues that Aunt Catherine gave me sat right there in this book in a paragraph. And so I discovered in Bloxen's, Charles L. Bloxen's bibliography that William Grimes had written his life story and published it. And in this particular bibliography, it was 1855. And I thought, oh, my God, i got to get my hands on this book. So I did a little looking around and Actually, I called my cousin, Marguerite, and I told her, I said, you know what, I think I'm on to something here. So I gave her the information, and she 
also began looking around. She found in the in the library, the Oakland Public Library, that William Grimes' story was still in print in an anthology called Five Black Lives. And this anthology was also sitting on a bookshelf at Cody's Books in Berkeley, a legendary bookstore that's no longer. Um, they had three copies on their shelf. I went in there, and I bought all three copies. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea if this man belonged to me or not, but there was just this deep-down feeling that told me that he did. So I started reading this narrative, and the language just really, really astonished me. Nothing that I had ever read on slavery or was ever taught in school prepared me for this man's language. Uh, I, I just, you know, it took a lot just to even read through it, and it it read so bitter, it read so violent, it read just, it was painful, and um, I had to put all of the abuse I had to numb myself to it to get to the clues that were in the book. It wasn't until I came to the very end of the book that William Grimes announces his wife as the lovely and all-accomplished Clarissa Caesar. Immediately I phoned my Aunt Catherine and I, I asked her, is Caesar a family name? And you know, I could feel her on the end of the phone just searching her mind. And and uh, she said, you know, I, I think so, but I'm not sure. And then she said something and that just moved me to my feet. I mean, she, she said, oh, Gina, I've got to get you the family Bible. All of the family names are written in it. Oh, and I, wow. <laughs> I, I said, a Bible? You know, who has it? Where is it? Why hadn't I heard about this? I mean, I talked to so many family members, nobody even mentioned the Bible. And then when I, I went back to them again, have you heard of this Bible? Have you seen it? And I remember my mom saying to me, oh, you know, I've actually heard of it, but I've never seen it. And... I talked to my mother's siblings who were Auntie Catherine's age. And, and, and by the way, and I need to clarify this, Aunt Catherine is not my um, aunt. She is my cousin, my mother's first cousin. But she was so much older that out of respect we called her Auntie Catherine, and we lovingly did so because she was like an aunt to us. So mm-hmm. I'm interviewing family members. They've never heard of this Bible. Some said, you know, yeah, I think so, but I don't know where it is. So I was convinced that if there had been a Bible, it was long gone. So I began the long paper trail to William Grimes. Okay, I thought, well, my idea was if I could find William Grimes, the autobiographer, maybe names in his family would cross-reference with names in in my family history, names that I had been accumulating for a while now. And um, I 
that was my my first um, attempt to see whether there was a family connection. So I went to the 1850 census for the free state of Connecticut because I knew that's where the William Grimes, the autobiographer, lived. He stated that clearly in his narrative. And I knew that 1850 census was the first time that they were going to list everybody in the household. So I started there because my interest was names, names that I hope would turn up in my family tree, names that I hope would corroborate uh, some of the information Aunt Catherine had given me. So when I found William Grimes, the autobiographer and uh Wonderful list of family members and even his in-law, trial Caesar, and so forth. Then I went to the 1860 census for Connecticut again, and I found William Grimes, the autobiographer, and a wonderful list of family members and so forth. By 1870, his name no longer appeared in the census. He had vanished or died. But not one name, not one name cross-reference with the names that I had accumulated. So, you know, I had done what the genealogists tell you not to do, and that's going back too far too fast. So I hit a major brick wall, but I nonetheless was so intrigued with this narrative. I was curious about William Grimes's parents. He leaves blanks in this narrative. He talks about his father as being a wealthy white planter from King George and his mother an enslaved woman. William Grimes, in in the way he described himself, was really interesting to me. He said that he was three parts white, but passed as a Negro. He says that in his preface. That's one of the first things you learn about him. He said he was married to a black woman, and that told me that she obviously had no mixture that was apparent. Anyway, uh, getting back to this narrative and, and his father, he William describes a, a murder scene that takes place on his father's plantation. He doesn't name the plantation, but he said his father shot a man by the name of Mr. Galava for trespassing or just passing through his property. And I thought, okay. Well, maybe if I can find some sort of newspaper account of this murder that it would reveal William's father and the plantation. That was my late 20th century thinking as if a reporter was going to be on the scene, right? But I wasn't far from the truth. Uh, My first thought was, okay, well, I'll pour over all the newspapers of the region But mind you, this is in the early 90s, not the digital age where we can sit at our computers now. Um, So that task was going to take me forever. 
But one day I got really lucky. I was at Sutro Library in San Francisco, and I came upon a compiled record of genealogy abstracts from 18th century Virginia newspapers. And it was all in alphabetical order. So I turned to the Grimes name, and here I am thumbing through this book as my husband is driving us home across the San Francisco Bay Bridge, and I start screaming and crying. And Brandon, my husband, must have thought I had completely lost my mind (laughs) because a citation emerged that just corroborated William Grimes' story and and then started to take this narrative to an exciting new level. So um, I find that Benjamin Grimes from Eagle's Nest shot and killed a Mr. Galloway as recorded in the Virginia Herald, I believe, August 7th, I think, of 1794. So that was a huge find that would open up this man's story and take it to a whole other level because soon I'd find out so much about Eagle's Nest Plantation, which still stands, and who owned it originally was Benjamin Grimes's third maternal grandfather, who was one of the wealthiest men in Virginia in the late 17th century. Eagle's Nest was sold to outsiders in 1974 and remained in the family for 300 years. And um, 1974 was the year I started high school, so that gives you a good indication of how that property transferred through the family for so many generations. Really surprised me. It really did. So uh, you asked me one question, and I'm on and on and on, and I, I, I can't stop it. So I told you that's how I got started into genealogy. I find as a child, uh, a kid, showing an interest. And then years later when I'm a mother, uh, a young wife and mother with little girls, I, 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 I go on this 15-year journey. And um, I didn't tell you how I actually pieced this all together. Um, I'm doing this incredible paper search. I'm sucked into this narrative. I'm taking it to an exciting new level. And by the way, no other historian had bothered to to even dig beneath the surface of the Grimes narrative. And... Um, Here I was, this non-academic, coming up with or or corroborating this man's story, but yet I didn't know if this man even belonged to me. Uh, So everything I wanted to know about the white Grimeses and the Fitzhughes was so relatively easy to find. There's slave inventories, wills, and all of that, but yet I could not connect myself to William Grimes, and then something remarkable happened. It was amazing. My mother phoned me. She called to say that Aunt Catherine was on her way home from Portland, Oregon, from Portland, Oregon with pages she had found tucked inside the family Bible. So this Bible Oh, wonderful. Exists. 
she brought it home, and I couldn't wait to see it. But she and Catherine never liked to fly. She she took the the long train, and here I am waiting and waiting for her to get home. And when she came home, we had this wonderful family barbecue, and a lot of the family members were over. I didn't know what to to expect. I didn't know if there would be a connection or not. But there was the name William Grimes, the name Clarissa Caesar, was actually tucked away on the pages of, of the Bible on the family record. Oh, and by the wow. way, the the New York Times yesterday posted that um, document in their newspaper, and it shows the death date of William Grimes as August 21st, 1865. And the reason why I knew it was William Grimes, not only because of the name Clarissa Caesar indicated on the pages, but I had begun uh, a newspaper search mm-hmm. that um, where I found obituaries for William Grimes, the autobiographer, and it was the same date that was confirmed in the Family Bible. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you were so blessed to have that Bible. You, How great, and Catherine saved the day and all that. And, and all of that is true. All of that is true. But I, I would have made the same find four years later searching um, African-American newspapers. Uh, they are just the lifelines to the black community. And I, I always have to tell people you need to study the newspapers because the records, what we did for recreation and so forth, were listed uh, deaths, marriages, uh, just wonderful gatherings and the wonderful spirit of our people are in those newspapers. So um, I was able to find the obituaries that William Grimes' daughters posted in the uh, papers. And it wasn't until I went back to uh, UC Berkeley um, as an employee was I able to really sink into those newspapers and really study them because they were right there just doors away from the office that I worked in. And I I took advantage of everything on campus that uh, would illuminate the Grimes narrative and his daughter, I mentioned the tragedy, and uh, her name was Cecilia Victoria. And in the libraries at Berkeley, I'd, I'd find not a, a playbill to her performances, but um, an announcement. Uh, she was helping to raise money for a literary society and library. And so Auntie Catherine's heroine, if I said that correctly, (laughs) she was just as illustrious as her father, if not more. She wrote political poetry. She um, was involved in the early black newspapers in the Bay Area. She, her performances were... um, during the era of Reconstruction to integrated audiences. It just blew me away. And Catherine's the woman she talked so much about that I cared least about, I found 
uh, newspaper uh, reviews of her work. And I have such admiration for her because at a time when black women were relegated to the most menial tasks, she was out carving her own path. And and I have uh, yet to really tell her story. In fact, there's a bicoastal story that I am hoping to get down on paper in a memoir that I am trying to to um, finish up, and, and I don't mean right. that I'm near the end. I am uh, sure. Really well, I want you to beginning. take us to help help everyone understand though the significance of the life of William Grimes, the runaway slave, because he actually wrote about his life. But what makes this slave narrative different from other slave narratives? Well, this slave narrative is pioneering. It's precedent-setting because he predates the era when the slave narratives were, um, what word can I say? They were used by the abolitionist movement. Okay, so he wrote his book in 1825. That was the first narrative. Then in 1855, he writes an expanded version of the same narrative, and it just has an added chapter explaining his, his life in later years. Okay, so the first narrative was written at a time when autobiography for or African American autobiography was rare. Okay? Mhm. It was before the um American anti-slavery movement 8 years before the that movement. It was before Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist, um even um was the abolitionist is before he took up that cause. It was before the liberator. It was before Nat Turner's uh, rebellion. It was before the first African American newspaper, Freedom's Journal, that came out in 1825. And I, I learned all this by partnering with uh, Dr. William L. Andrews, who's an expert on early African American autobiography, and he was the one that had written a little bit about William Grimes that I happened on. And I uh, developed a friendship with Bill, and I started sending him information that I had found on William Grimes. Like there was a series of letters that nobody even knew about that negotiated William Grimes' freedom. And and I didn't tell your audience, but William Grimes was had ten different masters um, before he decided he was going to, escape from from slavery okay so he's in he is in the free north and he writes about the quote-unquote free north and he's the first person to explain how the north was so such a harsh reality for the fugitive slave or for black people in general it was a very hostile environment um, so he probably had this sort of grand look or, or or maybe his observation 
or in his mind was, I'm going to run away to this free territory and I will be well received and it will be the land of milk and honey and, you know, that would be a great life. But it, it wasn't. It was, he called a hard, cold country and he had a really hard time etching out a life for himself. Um, he was an industrious man. He he uh, was a servant at Yale College, eventually a barber. Uh, William Grimes was spotted several times by um, his former master's friends as he's living in this free, uh, quote-unquote, free territory um, as a fugitive. And he even barbers in Litchfield, Connecticut, which is the first law school, where the first law school in American history is, which is Tapping Reeves' Litchfield Law School. And so this was the first time that men from the South would go to the North to study law. Before that, you had to go to Europe. Okay, to England. Uh-huh. This was the first time these communities, the North and the South, came together, and I can imagine they had hefty debates on slavery and whatnot. So William Grimes would encounter people that he knew from the South. So he's always on the run. He was always on the run um, because he was fearful that he was going to get caught. And lo and behold, that did happen. His master finds him. By this time, he he has property, he has children, he has a wife. He he was savvy enough to buy a, a building which he had moved on a piece of land that he bought. And all of that was stripped from him. He ended up giving up the deed to his home, his livelihood, just so that he could be quote-unquote, free. Okay, so you asked me about um, this narrative, and I'm I'm letting you know that it is precedent-setting. It is the uh, first fugitive slave narrative in American history, the famous fugitive slave narratives from the 1840s and 50s that were the the, um, stock and trade of the abolitionist movement, as Bill likes to say. They were either dictated to, edited by, corrected by, sponsored by white people, but William Grimes is beholden to no one. Okay? Bill likes to say that this narrative is an unfiltered, unedited, authentic voice of literary independence. This is why we should study William Grimes' narrative today. And lastly, Frederick Douglass, the most famous fugitive slave autobiographer was only seven years old when the Grimes narrative appeared. So you get to you get a good sense of how this pioneering voice stood all by itself. And some historians today are finally saying that William Grimes may have unwittingly started a new genre of American literature, which is the American slave narrative. Now, we know that there were narratives that predated William Grimes' story, but they weren't the fugitive slave narrative. His was the first. Um, And other narratives were published in England, and they were also writing about Slavery in the North, William Grimes is the first person to go through slavery in the South and write about it. 
That's huge. And one of the things, though, Regina, and you're talking about William Grimes, very few people have even heard of, heard of him. this Absolutely. first fugitive slave narrative. And as you read his story, I mean, he starts with his his life was just just so violent. I mean, it's amazing yes. that he had the fortitude to run away. I mean, <laughs> he was just beaten down, and every right. and just and reading tried. about him, it's it it makes you just want to cry. You have to walk around and fan yourself because oh, yeah. all of it's the hard. feelings. Yes, it, it's, it's hard. And that's why we should study William Grimes' story today, because the other narratives that I said were very popular in the eighteen. Um, 40s and 50s, they were picked up by the abolitionists or nurtured by the abolitionists, okay? So they were writing, being written for a white audience, all right? And there was a certain way that you had to present these narratives to an audience, white audience, for um, them to want to even listen. William Grimes' story would not be a candidate for the abolitionist movement because it's so bitter and harsh. Right. And not well, only that, I want, implies... you to hold, I want you to hold your thought because we're going okay. to continue to talk about this, but you need to take a break. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right. and beyond blog talk radio this is your host bernice alexander bennett and you can join me every thursday at 9 p.m eastern time where i will have an expert to share resources stories and answer your burning genealogy and history questions remember all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, you have been listening to Regina Mason discuss why and how she began the journey to find William Grimes. And she, oh, she has so much to tell us about William Grimes. I mean, she has taken us from how she went through her journey. She discovered there's a Bible out there with his name on it. So she's basically authenticated that this is indeed her ancestor. But not only that, she discovered the that he wrote the first 
fugitive slave narrative. And I want to say that again, the first fugitive slave narrative. So, Regina, take us to where you discovered William Grimes. I said you said he did his first narrative was in 1825, and his second narrative was around 1853 or 1854. What was different in the second 55? What was different in the second narrative? The second narrative. Um, does not dispute anything in the first narrative. He merely adds a chapter chronicling his life um, in old age. And sadly, when you read just that little uh, um, added chapter, he was still, even in freedom, always on the run. He was kind of a restless kind of person. But he was always looking for opportunity as well. And unfortunately, he was never able to regain um, the financial means that he did or had in earlier years. Um, so he died August 21st, 1865. He had to know that freedom was in the air you know, for all of America. Uh, his couple of his sons served in the Civil War, and I've been able to find their military and pension records. And what's interesting about that is or, or um, he had a son, and uh, he had lots of sons, by the way. He claimed to have had 18 children, but 12 survived, and, and, and the sons, uh, did not live, I, I'll say, beyond 40 years of age. It was his daughters that had the longevity in life, and it is his youngest daughter that living, da- or at the the daughter that survived, because there were he had a couple daughters after her, but they didn't survive um, in childhood even. And but Cecilia did, and I stem for from. Her and I, I just want to say this in Grimes's book, he talks about his wife and children, some of his children having left to go to California in search of gold. I had no idea at the time I read the book that he was speaking of my line. There's a rich and long history in uh, California, and I was able to find where my family came in 1852, just shortly after statehood. And um, there's a misconception out there among some of the scholars who, who don't have the documentation that I have that um, insist that William Grimes's wife left him, and that, um, as if to say, they they had not parted on good terms, or they were not in communication. But that's far from the truth. They never severed ties. In fact, there's a um, evidence in an autograph book in my family that have signatures from both New Haven and the San Francisco Bay Area, and he had a son-in-law who worked on um, 
the name of the ship escapes me right now, but um, and it was a mail mail carrier ship, but he was married to Grimes's oldest daughter, um, Mary Augusta, and they lived not only in San Francisco, but they also had a home that they owned in New Haven, Connecticut. I found where William Grimes' sons were often living in the same household as he, and then he had sons that were living in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's just this fantastic story that um, I hope to tell before I leave this planet because there's so much more about the Grimes story than just the narrative, and that's what I am attempting to do via film and also with the memoir. Right, and so I and for those of you that are looking at the scroll and they're seeing your picture and they're also seeing your book, I want people to know that there's a link to a trailer of which you can look at uh, the the trailer to the story because one way that Regina has chosen to share this story is by way of a movie. So why don't you tell us about storytelling in different forms so that people could understand uh, their history? Okay. Well, I, I would share the methods that I use because, First of all, I believe in the power of storytelling. I believe that we all have stories that are just as valuable and important as the next person. And I like to say that when we share our stories with each other, then we can understand each other's struggle. So better way than to share our feelings through storytelling. So there's a, 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 I call it a slave descendant soliloquy, which I perform in in schools and um, wherever, historical societies, uh, corporations, and so forth. And it has to do with tolerance and equity and and, uh, inclusion, and it's simply me telling my story of William Grimes and having his image appear on screen. So there's two stories that that emerge, not only my story, but the story of William Grimes, and I have an actor who portrays William Grimes, um... We captured him on film. His name is Michael Lange. He was an iconic figure in the Bay Area. Sadly, Michael passed away about um, five months ago. He had a very short but severe battle with uh, lung cancer, but uh, fantastic, um, a fantastic actor. So um, Michael was a big part of the Grimes movie, 
and uh, it's called the movie is called Gina's Journey: The Search for William Grimes. And Bernice, I just want to just say this: um, William Grimes gave himself permission, and that is what I take away from his narrative. I look at the constraints that he placed under, how the oppression that he was placed under, but he he never lost sight of who he was as a person. He became a property owner, and he wrote this narrative. He did the unthinkable. And when I look at that, by extension, I realize that I have the same qualities in with within me. And so... I, I by his example, have given myself permission. So I have edited this narrative. I have this film coming out, this docudrama that has been put together by very experienced people in film. A lot of people came on board um, offering their expertise because they believed in the in the project, and so we've got all of this support from um, communities, and we are on a very slight budget, but we're making it happen. It's been about five years now um, since we've started the project. The principal filming for Gina's Journey is finished. Um, it's now in post-production. We want to um, get it out to the film festivals and, and so forth. So you never know what the Lord has in store for you, and you never know what you're capable of doing. And you may not have all the answers, but if your cause is for the good, the answers come. So um, in our family autograph book, there is a quote from a Robert B. Williams, and it says, Let your ambition be a noble one, and who shall blame it? And as a kid seeing that, I didn't think much of it, and I thought it was kind of funny. What does that mean? What kind of – he could have said it in a more straightforward way, but um, this is, I understand what it means now. Uh-huh, I understand uh-huh. what it means now. He, he is, and that's essentially what I have done. The cause is for the good, and the people have rallied to um, support it. Well, one of the things that, I mean, the points that you just brought up, though, you're saying William Grimes gave himself permission to tell the, tell his story, and you have given yourself permission to also right. tell the story. And so many people have stories, and they're not telling the stories. They're not writing about the stories. And this is, I think, one of the reasons I do blog talk radio a lot is because I want people to hear the stories, to hear the journey. Because if you started your journey in 1971 as a child (laughs) in fifth grade being given an assignment, and here you are today with the life of William Grimes, the runaway slave, in writing, and now it's going to become a movie. 
so that others can hear it, I think it is it is a, a, absolutely an amazing journey. But I also know that you and others came together just last week, and I want you to tell us about other descendants of uh, individuals that wrote slave narratives. Uh, what did that yes. mean to you? And tell us who came together and how was this organized? Okay. Yes, the experience was awesome. Last weekend, a historic gathering took place at the University at Buffalo. It was called Reclaiming Our Ancestors, which was a workshop for descendants of authors of slave narratives. And it was just amazing. It was held October 29th through November 1st. And we had about almost a dozen participants. Um, from all over. Uh, there was Rhonda Brace of Springfield, Massachusetts. She descends from Jeffrey Brace. Uh, there were three representatives of Venture Smith, uh, Corinne, Henry Brady of Rhode Island, um, Susie Ryan of Massachusetts, and Gina Ryan of uh, Bridgeport. Connecticut, those three came together telling their stories and handed down memories and so forth. They grew up always knowing that Venture Smith, who wrote a very early slave narrative, who talks about the Middle Passage and and having survived that. And so it was powerful. Rhonda Brace is another um descendant of the slave narrative, Jeffrey Brace, who wrote, I believe, his life story in 1810, and he was also from Africa and writes about that middle passage. There was uh, Carver Gayton of Seattle, Washington. He descends from uh, Lewis Clark, and his family uh, was able, they knew their heritage all along as well, um, and they were able to show where Harriet Beecher Stowe was um, inspired by uh, Lewis Clark's story. And she actually captures his essence in Uncle Tom's Cabin. All right, there's Lynn Jackson of Missouri, and she's a descendant of Dred Scott. She participated, and we all know about that historic court case. She, her, her relative didn't leave a written record, I mean, or a slave narrative, but, of course, we've got that infamous court case. Um, Vera Williams. Of Bowie, Maryland. She was a descendant of Solomon Northup. She was present. Eric Shepard, descendant of Moses Grande. He was also, I believe, a fugitive, wrote a fugitive slave narrative. So we had all of these people come together, and there was also Tamara Lee. She participated, and um, Natari Ali Galt participated as well. And, and this workshop came together through a phenomenal woman by the name of Dr. Kari Winter. And 
She's a professor of American studies and director of the Institute for Research and Education on Women and Gender out of the university there in Buffalo. And she invited me to participate in a conference called Slavery, Past, Present, and Future. And it took place in Oxford, England. And um, Rhonda Brace was invited in well as well. And that conference was so powerful and eye-opening. I think they, we, they had at least 13 um, representatives from 13 different countries, I believe, that talked about slavery as it looks like today, human trafficking in, where, in their region of the world. So we do know that slavery is alive and well. It's known by a different name, but it is, affects everybody globally. And out of that workshop, and I, I don't mean to be long-winded about it, but we got the idea, the three of us got the idea to expand what we were doing in England and see what we could put together in um, the United States. So um, I told Kari that I had been in touch with some of the descendants of the slave narratives, and she she said, well, if you can get these people together, you know, maybe we can put something together at my university, but I had no idea that she was going to take it to the height that she took it. She's just an amazing woman. She greeted us so graciously. We um, were able to brainstorm ideas, and out of this phenomenal workshop, we'll call Come Together, an anthology of um, essays that we intend to publish so oh, in that's a nutshell, wonderful. that's how that happened. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, that sounds like the probably the most uh, exciting opportunity ever for descendants to come together and share their stories. Yes. And it would have been, I mean, it would have been wonderful just to be a fly on the wall to see Absolutely. all of you in the room. And so when do you think this anthology will come out? Well, it's in the beginning stages, and we're trying to see which direction we want to go as a group as well. But we're going to get right on um, writing uh, our essays and, and so forth because um, we are so energized by the public outpouring of support and, and all of the media and the press that we've just been given recently. And it's only been a few days. We haven't even been home a full week yet. So uh, we we are so thrilled for the platform, and we're hoping, Bernice, that you could can host us, <laughs> invite us to your show so that you can hear from these other voices because they all have incredible stories to tell, I think um, your audience will find um, their stories alone just amazing. 
Well, that's certainly a, a wonderful, wonderful suggestion, and definitely I will reach out to everyone. Lynn Jackson oh, and Vera Williams are former guests on the show, and so we've had an opportunity to hear them. But, of course, there are others, and I think it would be just a wonderful forum to have descendants of slave narratives to come on and share with us. Just what did it feel like as you read what your ancestor had to say back then? And uh, what impact has that had on your life today, if if any? So oh. it, it is something that I certainly would want to uh, have uh, in the near future. Yeah. But what impact Absolutely. has it had on your life? I mean, you are now talking about this. You, you've said that you have been given permission to tell the story. But what has it done to you? William Grimes' narrative essentially freed me. You know, we all walk around with our excess baggage. We walk around um, not thinking that we're capable. We let people talk us out of things. Um, we we look for validation from other people. Uh-huh. But he didn't. He did not. He believed in himself that he was capable. And in his narrative, he even says, if I had just been given the chance... I could have done so much with my life. He claimed, he said, I was smart and a fast learner. That spoke volumes to me. So mm-hmm. when I say that his book was life-changing for me, it is because, again, I go back to the whole thing about permission. I don't know. I would not believe that I was capable of writing a book annotating a book, making a film, um, speaking in front of the public. But William Grimes, Grimes' example told me that I could. And so Mm -hmm. I say his narrative freed me. Right. And we have a comment coming from the chat saying that slavery didn't break his spirit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are getting close to the end of the show, and I just want to know if you have any parting words for the guests in the chat room. Yes, I do. It is so important to reclaim what is ours and to share our journeys with our families, and with each other, and when I say each other, I mean across the color lines and so forth, because you knowing my plight and I knowing your plight, we will see a commonality, and we can build from that common ground. So my thought is to just capture your you, – you, if you want a sturdy foundation in life, you've got to go to your history. I can't think of a more liberating um, phenomenon. And what I mean by that, genealogy has the power to transform lives. And that's where I'll leave it. Okay, and we have a comment uh, out of the chat. Uh, That is so true. Genealogy (laughs) has the power (laughs) to transform lives. 
And so with that, I want to just thank you so much, Regina Mason, for joining us tonight. And to those of you who are listening, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives, and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Babies Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to everyone joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Regina. Oh, Bernice, thank you so much. Good night. Thank you. Good night.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.